Welcome to season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, where yesterday's dinner is tomorrow's history. If you're a peckish person who is curious about the history of food and drink, then you're in the right place. I'm Sam Bilton, a food historian, writer and presenter, and each season I will be joined by some hungry guests to discuss a variety of topics centred around a specific theme. It can't have escaped your notice that Britain, and indeed much of the world, is in a pretty rubbish place financially speaking. Just about everyone is feeling the pinch from the cost of living crisis at the moment. So that is why I have chosen austerity as the theme for this season. Now I'm not here to provide money or energy saving tips, as there are plenty of other podcasts and websites doing that very well already. What I plan to do with my guests this season is look at how people have coped or reacted in times of austerity in the past. We'll be exploring everything from food riots, heroic ingredients, and the origins of some popular energy-saving devices. Although we are living in straitened times, there is no reason why the tradition of the comfortably hungry potluck supper can't continue, especially as the dishes provided are virtual after all. They may well be on the frugal side, but they will undoubtedly be delicious. So to whet everyone's appetites, I've invited my guests to bring along a virtual dish inspired by their topic. In this last episode of season one of the Comfortably Hungry podcast, I wanted to take a slightly different approach to the theme of austerity. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Make, Do and Mend initiative launched by the British government in 1941. New clothing was rationed from June of that year, so people were encouraged to repair or repurpose clothes. You can hear one of my earlier guests, Liz Trigg and her mother Val, talking about this on the original Home Economist podcast. I'm not going completely off-piste, but the concept of make, do and mend did get me wondering about how it can be applied to the kitchen. Whether it's a canny use of leftovers or utilising vegetable offal, more of that later, I want to explore how we can make the most of what we have available in our kitchen cupboards. I could, of course, have focused on the war years in Britain when food rationing was in place, but I'm particularly interested in how other cultures approach this idea of making do. To help me answer this question, I have two guests with me today of Gujarati heritage. Now, we talked for a very long time, so I've split this final episode into two parts. The second part will be released in a couple of weeks. Joining me today are food writer and author of Biting Biting, Snacking Gujarati Style, Vashi Rowe, and food historian and author of the philosophy of curry, Sajal Sukhudwala. Welcome to the podcast, Vashi and Sajal. Thank you. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having us. So we're taking a slightly different tack on my podcast theme for this season of austerity in terms of I wanted to look at resourcefulness, really, in the kitchen, because I think that's very important at the moment. So how important is resourcefulness in Indian cooking and in what ways is this demonstrated? So maybe I'll go first um, um, with that one, Sejal, if you if if you're okay with that. Um yes, I don't I don't think, Sam, that I've known anything other than resourcefulness with regards to the food that I learned to cook. 
So my family is Gujarati, which is the state um, on the western side of India, just above uh, Bombay, Mumbai. And um, my family traveled from there, as many others did, either before partition or after partition to East Africa. And I think that that element of travel and settling and that process of settling in a new land, either whether it was from Gujarat to Tanzania or Kenya or Uganda or Zambia, as many others did, and then from there onwards to America or Canada or the UK, I think that things were scarce, right? Um, People didn't have a lot of money. And so I don't think I've ever been taught anything other than to be resourceful in the kitchen. And for me, this is really demonstrated with the thinking behind the the idea, original idea for my book, um, Biting Biting, which was really, when I reflect back on it, kind of comes back to an interaction between my mother, who's now 75 years old, and my husband, who is a British white male, right? And I remember this really vividly. It was it was when, when my eldest daughter was born and my mother was staying with us. And we have a under-the-counter fridge. And my husband was bent down opening this fridge and he must have been looking for something. I don't actually remember what it was. And there was all these little bowls in the fridge um, that he found. And he was like, God, why are there all these little bowls of stuff, you know, this is like two tablespoons of the chickpea shark we had yesterday and then like three tablespoons of the dal. Why do you keep all of these little bowls? And my mother just looked at him with this horrified look, almost like, you know, like a, imagine a Paddington stare, but like <laughs> 10 times multiplied. You know, it's like, what the hell do you, what are you talking about? Why, why would we throw that away? Why on earth would we throw that away? Because yeah, okay, today it's two tablespoons of shark, but tomorrow it's something else. And I think that's really when it dawned on me that people don't get this. People haven't been raised the way that I was around not wasting anything. And I truly think that that comes from that migration, immigration, not having what you want or are used to, so that you become as resourceful as possible with the tools implements ingredients that you have in the kitchen and see Joel how about you what's your take on this yeah I mean I think it's um, expected every housewife is going to be resourceful in the kitchen it's a quality which is admired um, living within your means and using all the ingredients on hand you know these things are expected and admired and they're you know very much part of the culture and this is achieved via you know like everyone in india especially of my mother's and grandmother's generations uh, they have really good well stocked store cupboards so you have all your all your pulses all your grains and flours and oils and spices i mean spices are really important uh, because they can turn really ordinary humble everyday ingredients into something really delicious. If you had a um, cold mashed potatoes or half a tin of chickpeas, uh, if you cook them with onions and garlic and ginger and chilies and spices, they would just be transformed into something super delicious. You know, it's about having a really good store cupboard. And um, also this resourcefulness in terms of like 
in some parts of India, the weather is really unpredictable, you know, like there might be flooding or there are areas which are really dry and arid and there may, there may not be any fresh vegetables, you know, available for a few, few weeks. So then what Indian women do, I mean, it's usually women, what they do in the kitchen is they use puppets, which are served as poppadums in Indian restaurants. So puppets and things like bari, which is which are like uh, dried, dehydrated lentil nuggets, uh, which are made from uh, lentil paste and spices. So they use you know, these kind of ingredients, pop dries, flattened rice, chickpea flour. You know, these are used uh, for making curries and subsies and side like side you know so-called vegetable dishes even though they don't contain any vegetables so there are all these ingredients which are kept on hand uh, which are used in everyday dishes in making snacks and preparations of meals as well but they, they come in handy when you know when the weather's too bad to go outside and that's really interesting actually and I love I love the idea that your mum told Tony off for keeping loads of leftovers <laughs> over for questioning the keeping of leftovers I get questioned for keeping leftovers even in <laughs> England by my family being resourceful has obviously been crucial to your family Vashi since they arrived in Britain from Tanzania in the 1970s so how did your mother and aunties cope with the lack of familiar ingredients when they first arrived here what changes or concessions did they have to make to their cooking yeah it's a good question Sam I mean I was only really five, six years old, right, when we came to this country. So I don't remember witnessing much of this. Um, I just remember always having something to eat that was familiar. And, you know, I can't tell you how important that is when you are estranged from what you've known and you're immersed into the everyday of a new life that you're trying to build. So, I just remember, I don't remember my mum not being resourceful. I don't remember my mum not being able to access food that was familiar to me back in Tanzania as a child. I just remember coming home from school and there was some snacks that she had prepared for me, some biting, biting, because I had been at school and I was home and she would give me a glass of milk with maybe some sakapara, which is like some sakapara, like these deep fried um, sweet snacks. You know, having spoken to my mum and my aunties recently and in preparation for writing the book, I think that they, it was like this kind of almost like a gossip network, right? I mean, our culture is a bit of a gossip community because, you know, women with women and it's like equates to the, the Japanese uh, symbol for a house, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but the Japanese symbol for house is three women inside a structure which is the Japanese symbol for noise, sorry, not house. So I find it quite interesting that the Japanese symbol for noise is three women in the house, basically. <laughs> so that that's basically, you know, the way that my mother grew up. She was in and out of people's houses. There was extended families that we all lived with, and that's what she knew. So coming to the UK, we didn't necessarily have that. We didn't have phones. We didn't have mobiles. We didn't have WhatsApp. I think that at that time, whenever they found something or an ingredient that they had back home it just got well known to the rest of them that oh my god you can go here and you can buy bajranolot or jananolot you know chickpea flour or whatever it was because those shops that were selling those ingredients were so far and few you know few and far between so I think that they grappled with ingredients and grappled with 
trying to understand what they could do with those ingredients. So, for example, you know, sandwiches. Sandwiches is it's, it's a pretty new concept back in 1975, 76, right? We didn't really eat bread back where we, we lived. We had rotley. So I remember going to school and mum made me a rotley sandwich. So basically she put cheese, new ingredient, never come across that before we came to England, grated because, you know, we had a grater. We didn't have a slicer. We had a grater. And she had grated that into a rotley and then she'd rolled that up. Now today, you wouldn't think anything of that because everybody makes wraps, right? Everybody makes burritos or whatever the equivalent of that is with these rotleys or these flatbeds. But back in 1975-76, she was just trying to come up with an alternative for bread, which she hadn't come up with before because she hadn't come across it before. So I think there was a huge amount of creativity going on back then with these women who had not known anything you know, other than Gujarati food in back in Tanzania, maybe some African ingredients thrown in and African dishes thrown in. And they come to Britain and they go to the shops and they see, you know, typical staples, British staples like bread. They see condiments like mango chutney and jars and they try and make the best of it, right? I mean, what else can you do? See, Joel, did your family have a similar experience then when they, uh, did your yeah. parents perhaps have a similar experience or aunties perhaps have a similar experience when they arrived in Britain? Yeah, um, there were very few um, Indian grocery stores at the time, uh, but we lived on Finchley Road. And there was one off Finchley Road, which was, um, I think it was called Osaka. Uh, I don't know why it had a Japanese name, um, but it was run by Mr. Singh and uh, he had all the ingredients. So we used to, it was just a tiny little shop. And my mom was like really excited because, you know, that's where she could get all the all the ingredients. And then sometimes we'd go to South Hall and she'd, she'd be able to get more ingredients. I remember being able to buy Punjabi pickles in, in cans and that was just like incredibly exciting. I think definitely women had to be resourceful and they had to adapt pretty quickly and you know you you have this whole kind of uh, what's called i think third cuisine which is a uh, which is diaspora cuisine which has come out of it it's it's a whole sort of genre of delicious cuisine in its own right and that, actually i think that resourcefulness is passed down so i had the privilege of living in japan for about 4 years and i went with you know spices basic spices um packed in my bag but then I ran out of them and I didn't know where to buy them. And I remember going into this Indian restaurant in Ueno, which is like this really glitzy district of Japan where they sell lots of kind of cameras and electrical goods. And I found this Indian restaurant. I'm like, oh, my God, there's an Indian restaurant. Oh, they must know where to buy all of these spices. And I went into the restaurant. They spoke Hindi. I don't speak Hindi very well. And we managed to kind of like have a conversation. And I came out of there with like loads of packets of spices because they felt so sorry for me that I hadn't been able to eat. And they fed me dal and they fed me rotli and they fed me, you know, loads of Indian food, which I hadn't eaten for six months. I hadn't eaten food that nobody else had cooked for me. So I, I think you just inherit this element of resourcefulness because you've lived it, you've seen it. Mm. And even though you were so little, you've just, it's kind of like osmosis. It just is in you. We yeah. talked uh, earlier about making the most of what was left over into snacks. 
I find that quite interesting because in the West, we tend to preach that snacking is bad, particularly between meals, that you shouldn't do it. Nobody obviously listens to that. But why is snacking such an integral part of Gujarati life? So I think that it it stems from when people were living in extended families back in Africa or back in India. So if I look at like you know where my my father's father lived in Rajkot there was him my 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 dada and then my dadi his wife and then in the same house there was kind of like you know he lived in this section of the house and then his elder son lived in the right hand side and then the younger son lived on the left hand side and there was a courtyard in the middle right so the family are all kind of interconnected so you've got family together and then you've got people dropping in at all hours of the day i mean sam my house when my father I, you know, eventually bought the house that they still live in now in Perivel. It was like Piccadilly Circus. I mean, you know, we had people dropping in all times of day. And God forbid that somebody pop in and you can't feed them. You have to feed them. The first thing that you ask, I mean, it's similar in, in like Thai culture, I think, where they say, um, they don't say hello, they say, have you eaten? Mm. It's the same with us. It's like, you know, you somebody comes to the house now, if you two were both to come and just turn up unannounced to my house, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, come, 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 come sit. And I would proceed to start making some food. And the first place, you know, if it wasn't dinner time and if it wasn't lunchtime and I hadn't prepared something, then I might just go to the fridge and say, oh, let me see what I've got in the fridge that I can turn into a little snacket. And as Sejal says, you know, we have a fully loaded store cupboard. So it's not like you're just using the stuff in the fridge. You're coupling that stuff that's left over in the fridge, let's say roast vegetables with stuff that's in your cupboard, let's say rice, so that you can just cook up some rice, you know, heat up those roast vegetables, do a bit of stir fry and boom, there you go, there's a snack. So I think it stems from that culture of visiting and ensuring that nobody goes hungry and that element of hospitality that you have given me the honour of coming to my house to visit me it is my duty to feed you. So the name of your book, Biting, Biting, that's very specific to your family, isn't it? It's not generally yeah. what in Gujarati culture that's the term that would be used to refer to the snacks, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose in the state of Gujarat, snacks is like farsan, is the the broad, art, yeah. you know, arching name for snacks. But I thought everybody said biting, biting, right? I mean, when I started researching this book, like, so it's like, aunties would come around and mum would say, come on, let's go do biting, biting. Or if we go to my mama's house, my bro- my mum's brother's house, then he'd say, yeah, you know, there's some biting in the garden. Let's go do some biting in the garden. So it's either biting, biting or biting with the kind of eye long and drawn out. And I thought that it was just a Gujarati thing. You know, everybody did biting, biting. But no, when I started doing my research for the book, it was like, yeah, we kind of heard that before, but no. <laughs> so it turned out to be just my family thing in the main. And it's still a thing, right? I mean, I haven't been to mom's house for ages, actually. And But whenever I go, they'll always be biting. It's kind of like, okay, what biting, biting, what shall, what shall we do? If it's not dinner time, if it's dinner time, then full-blown meal, yes. but. Other than that, it's kind of, oh, what biting, biting do you fancy? And if you know someone's coming round, then you prepare the biting that you know that they like. So mum knows that I love dokra, right? And my mum's dokra is the best dokra in the whole world, um, even better than mine, even though my way of making it is so much less faffier than her way of making it. But she still makes really good dokra. So if she knows that I'm coming round, she will have maybe, maybe made dokra for me. Or similarly, my masi 
um, my mum's sisters or, you know, one of my aunties who lives across the road from my mum. I remember when I was pregnant, she always used to kind of make me kitchi, which is like this steamed dough, uh, rice dumplings. They're made of rice flour or chili and cumin. And they're kind of like steamed dumplings. My husband mm-hmm. thinks that they're absolutely ridiculous, but then my husband also it's delicious. hates. <laughs> yeah, amazing. But yeah, I would literally, I would turn up at my mom's house and 20 minutes later, my auntie from across the road would be over with this steaming pile of, of kitschy because she knows that I love it. So I think that it's just inherent in our culture to feed. <laughs> and I think it's yeah, interesting what you say about the, the store cupboard having ingredients set and spices. One of the recipes that really stood out for me in your book or in terms of resourcefulness was the store cupboard shack. Three tin shack, yeah. I read the recipe and I was like, okay, it's got spices in it, but because there's no onion, no garlic, no ginger, it's just spices and your tins. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see. Give it a go. And it was utterly delicious. Yeah. But next time you can add your garlic and you can add your onion and you can, you know, experiment and play with it. And that's what I love about that recipe. Had somebody tweet me the other day, actually, to say that they had made three tin shack. And the, the reason that that came about was, again, back to resourcefulness, Sam, right? So I, I don't have time to shop. And frankly, I don't have the patience for it either. So when I shop, I buy a ton of tins. So, I mean, you can go to Wembley. Sejal knows this. You know, there's like VB mm. and Sons in Wembley, which is one of my favorite shops. And you can buy a tray of 12 tins for like two pounds. I mean, something, you know, it's not that cheap, but it's ridiculously cheap. So we'll go and we'll buy, you know, a tray of chickpeas, a tray of kidney beans, a tray of coconut milk, and that sits in the store cupboard. And then in addition to that, you've got the stuff in your freezer, you know, frozen peas, frozen sweet corn and and so on. So I think that it comes back to that element of resourcefulness of, okay, what if someone did pop round? Well, if I didn't have anything to feed them, oh my God, what would they think then? So I always have tins, always have stuff in my freezer that I could just knock up into something because I still feel like I'd bring shame on my family if I wasn't <laughs> able to feed the hundred people that turned up on my doorstep. <laughs> Unannounced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, Jal, are you the same then? Do you have a store cupboard full of tins and uh, yeah, spices I mean- are given, but... Yeah, the re- the reason why I live in the house that I live in is because um, it has a walk-in larder. Yeah, that was a major consideration when I when I bought my house many years ago. That it has a nice big kitchen and a walk-in larder, and I can store. Uh, I mean, it's like a mini grocery store. You know, I can store <laughs> huge uh, varieties of rice and pasta and pulses, spices. You know, different oils, different grains, different flours, and so on. So there's always ingredients on hand to you know turn anything into a delicious meal from leftovers i think most indians do that you know i think it's it's yeah it's a very cultural things thing and also it stems back from the time when freshly harvested grains and pulses were cleaned and stored you know for the for the whole year so i think you'd buy huge quantities of these ingredients and you just store them in like huge you know terracotta pots in, um, I'm talking about India, like you know, many like many decades ago, and that you know that habit of storing ingredients that hasn't gone away it's still you know it's still there, and you can just turn anything into magically into a, a delicious dish. So I think leftover sometimes you know you cook extra in order to make 
something from, you know, like leftover rice or leftover chapatis. It's so true. And also the point about storage, I think that's still ingrained. Like I have never known my mother to buy rice other than in a minimum five kilogram packet. Yeah. You go to mum's house and there's like these, you know, oil barrels, vegetable oil barrels. And then there's these sacks of flour, as Sejal says, and sacks of rice. I think it comes from, yeah, make that security of making sure that you've always got something. Yeah, that you you don't run out. <laughs> yeah. Now we come to my favourite bit of the podcast when I find out just what delights my guest is contributing to the season's virtual and humble potluck supper. So as you probably both know, I usually ask my guests to bring something to the season's potluck supper. It's obviously a virtual dish. So I'm intrigued. What dish will you be contributing today and why have you chosen it? Vashi, do you want to go first? Oh, man, that is so hard because it totally depends on the day. But I think today is a Dokra day. Every day is a Dokra day, quite frankly. But, you know, there is always yogurt in my fridge, plain yogurt. There is always coarse semolina in my store cupboard. If I don't have green chilies, then I almost always have a jar of jalapenos. So other than salt, that's pretty much all you need to make Dokra. And I think that Dokra is one of those incredibly satisfying, I don't even want to say dishes, it's not really a dish, it's kind of, it is properly a snack that just sates your hunger when you're feeling peckish and it takes like 15 minutes to make, as long as you have a jar of Eno also in the cupboard, because I have tried making Dokra with baking powder and bicarbonate of soda like Rick Stein uses and it just doesn't work, you need the Eno. So what is Eno exactly? So Eno is the stuff that we were given when we were children that settled stomach upsets. And you can buy it in this country, can you? Yeah, you, I, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can. You go into a chemist fruit and salt. ask for it. Yeah, fruit, it's known as fruit salt. Fruit, fruit salt. And funnily um, enough, I was in Thailand on holiday and they had strawberry flavoured Eno, which was like, oh, oh my God, the strawberry flavoured Eno. It's hilarious. Stro- um, strawberry flavoured Dukras. Yeah, no, no, that does not work, <laughs> right? But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, Eno is probably one of those store cupboard ingredients where if you if you went into the kitchen and you had a rummage around and you saw Eno, you're like, this person knows a Gujarati because it is such a staple in a Gujarati kitchen. And yeah, we used to have it when we were little, like, you know, a spoonful put into a glass of water and it would settle your tummy down. And of course, when we were little, we used to have many tummy upsets because we'd eat stuff at school and we didn't know what it was and we'd come home and our tummy would hurt. So, yeah, Eno, staple ingredient, staple takeaway. Going to send you some, Sam, so that you can make some Dokra. But that is what I would bring to the table. So, Vashi, where can listeners get a hold of a copy of your book, Biting, Biting? Yeah, so my book, Biting, Biting, Snacking Gujarati Style, is available at all good bookstores online and offline. It's also available via the Kitchen Press website. Kitchen Press are my lovely publisher. And I will also be at a few food festivals coming up this autumn. So I'm going to be at Rangilu Gujarat, which is a Gujarati festival, 1st to the 3rd of September, which is taking place in Kingsbury. Wow, Um, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) Yes, um, and then I'm going to be at Ludlow Food Festival, which is 
on the weekend of the 7th, I think 8th, 9th and 10th of September. And then I'll also be at Dartmouth Food Festival. So come and say hello. And if I see any more books on the horizon for you? I am launching a podcast. So that'll be coming out this autumn as well. It's called Biting Biting. And it will, of course, be chatting to lots of people about their snacking habits. So that's coming up. But no, I don't know about books. I've got a couple of ideas, but nothing fully brewed yet. Thank you to Avashi Rowe and Sujal Sukudwala for joining me today. I'll be releasing the second part of our conversation in a couple of weeks. You can find links in the show notes to Avashi and Sijal's books, articles and social media channels. If you'd like to find out more about the history of tinned food in Britain, pop over to my friend and fellow food historian Neil Buttery's British Food History podcast. He did a cracking interview recently with Dr Lindsay Middleton on the topic. You can also find a link to this episode in the show notes. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please let me know on X at SJF Bilton or Instagram at Mrs. Bilton. That's with two S's. And if you really love this episode, please rate and review it on Apple. It really does help listeners discover and engage with the show as they explore new podcasts. If you'd like to discover more about my work, pop along to sambilton.com where you'll find details on my books on gingerbread and saffron, as well as the Comfortably Hungry blog. You may also want to subscribe to the Comfortably Hungry newsletter on Substack, which complements this show. It includes recipes and more detailed notes from the season's episodes. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple, among other platforms, so that you never miss an episode. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the second part of this final episode. So keep your appetites keen. This podcast was created, researched, produced, recorded and edited by me, Sam Bilton, with music and sound effects provided by zapsplat.com. 